0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The New Covenant. So please turn to Luke 22. The title of the message today is The New Covenant. So as you're turning to Luke 22, um, just to piggyback, a uh, Christmas Eve, December 24th, falls on Sunday, Christmas will be on Monday, and so we're just going to keep our normal service times on Sunday, but we are going to add a one o'clock service on Christmas Eve for the extra crowd that will be coming, and so make a note of that. Luke 22, and then also, please stick your bulletin or something in Jeremiah 31. That's important you go ahead and find Jeremiah 31, because we're going to quickly turn there. Um, halfway through the message today. So if everybody can look at me, if you're new to the Bible, you just kind of open up in the middle and there's Jeremiah right there in the middle. It's right after Hezekiah. Some of you are looking for Hezekiah, but Hezekiah is not in the Bible. (laughs) And if you turn to your Bible and you have... First and second Maccabees and Tobit. um, See me and we'll get another Bible for you. (laughs) How's everybody doing today? Good. I'm doing great. I love, love, love this message. I want you to answer this in your heart. Don't raise your hand, but if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, what does the new covenant mean? Would you be able to answer them? And so if, if your honest answer is no, I don't know how to answer that question, then be a student today. Learn what the new covenant is all about. And then, just as important, be thankful and grateful for the amazing promises that go along with the new covenant for us today. And so let's go to the Lord and we'll get, get going today. And so Father, we do come to you with an attitude of gratitude We are so thankful for the promises, the unconditional promises that we have all because of your grace, and we stand in your grace today. And so, Lord, as we teach through this important teaching in the church, we ask, Lord, that you would build us up as your followers. And if there's anyone here today in this room, maybe watching uh, on Facebook or later on watching online or listening on the podcast, and, and they don't understand what it means to be saved, that today would be the day that they cross over from death to life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, All right, well, Jesus had come to the end of his three and a half year ministry. That's where we are in Luke, okay? And so we're right around scholars' debate, AD 32 or AD 33. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has wept over the city of Jerusalem because he knows that they are going to reject him. Jesus has predicted the destruction of both the city of Jerusalem and also the temple. And of course, that would take place in history, AD 70. And the reason that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, Jesus predicted it. And how many of you guys know that every, every time Jesus says something, it always happens? All right, so Jesus, by this time where you're at in the Bible, has made his triumphal entry into the city on the back of a donkey. He's cleansed the temple from a religious racket where religious false frauds are making extra money on the backs of God's people, and he's taught the people in the courts of the temple. Now, Passover is getting really, really close, and Jesus has this earnest desire to, to celebrate this particular Passover with his disciples. Now, why is this Passover so special to Jesus? Here's why, if you're with me, say amen here. Because on this Passover, Jesus was about to turn something that was old into something that is new. He's about to inaugurate the new covenant. And so let's dig in. Uh, Luke 22, now verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called what? Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes, that's that's the religious leaders of the day, were seeking how to put Jesus, look at this, to death. For they feared the people, so we are trying to figure out when the crowds aren't around, we don't want the crowds to turn against us. Okay, we gotta figure out how to secretly do this so that we can put Jesus to death. And so Passover is getting close here in Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Passover is one of the most important days um, of the year for Jewish people. And so each year on the evening of the 14th day of Nisan, Nisan is the first month on the Jewish calendar. So on the, on the evening of the 14th day of Nisan, Passover was celebrated, okay? And so if you look at our Gregorian calendar, Passover falls late March, but usually it falls in April. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread go hand in hand. And so in other words, uh, Passover comes first, evening of the 14th of Nisan, and then for seven days from the evening of the 14th all the way until the evening of the 21st, the Jews were not allowed to eat anything with leaven in it, and so they had to eat unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Of course, leaven, if you know your Bibles, is a symbol of sin and evil. So what exactly is Passover, if you're taking notes? It's an annual dinner that reminds the Jews that the Lord delivered their ancient ancestors from Egypt. If you've never read Exodus, you got to dig in. You got to get into God's Word and read these basic stories of, of behind the celebration. And so, the book of Exodus begins with the sad slavery of God's people. The children of Israel were enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and their slavery is horrible. And so what do they start to do? They start to cry out to the Lord, to God. Who's that? Yahweh, the only God. And they begin to cry out to the Lord, Uh, for the Lord to save them from their bondage. By the way, that's a good thing. You may be here today, and you may be in some kind of bondage. You're all chained up by something. Listen, you need to cry out to the Lord. Who's that? Yahweh, the only God, because he is the only one who's got the strength and the power to break the chains and to set you free. You can't do it on your own. And so they're crying out to the Lord. And how many of you guys believe that God hears and answers our prayers? May not always be how we want him to answer, but he hears us and he answers us. And so he sent Moses to deliver them from their bondage. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Let God's people go. And Moses folds his arms and says, No. Who's the Lord, right? mocking the true God, and he hardened his heart, and so God said, okay, and he sent 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. Now, the last plague, the 10th plague, would be worst of all. During the 10th plague, God, if Pharaoh did not repent, God would send the angel of death, and the angel of death would fly over the homes of Egypt, and he would go in and he would kill the firstborn sons in Egypt. Okay, and so that would be, if, unless Pharaoh repented, the 10th and final uh, plague. Now, the angel of death was gonna come. God said he's gonna come. Where? To Egypt. Who also lived in Egypt beh- beside the Egyptians? The children of Israel lived in Goshen, Egypt. And so the, how many guys understand the angel of death can be hazardous to your health? Okay, and so God gave them instructions of how they could escape this terrible judgment. Each family had to find a spotless lamb and sacrifice that lamb, a male of the first year. And they were to drain that lamb's blood into a bowl, take some hyssop, and then take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the lintel and the two door posts in every one of their homes there in Goshen, Egypt. So the children of Israel obeyed these instructions and sure enough, the angel of death came. The angel flew over all the homes in Egypt and he flew into those Egyptian homes and he did what God said he's gonna do. He struck and killed the firstborn sons. But when the angel of death flew over the homes in Goshen, Egypt, where the children of Israel lived, he saw something different. He saw the blood of the lamb. And when he saw the blood, he passed over feast of Passover, those homes, and spared them of judgment. So the next morning, a terrible cry could be heard throughout Egypt. Why? Because moms and dads woke up, and their firstborn sons were dead. Pharaoh woke up, and his firstborn son was dead. And so there was a cry throughout Egypt, but there was rejoicing in Goshen. Why? Because The children of Israel, they woke up and their firstborn sons were alive and well. Why? They were saved by the blood of the lamb. And so when Pharaoh saw all this, he told Moses, get out. Take your people with you and get this. And so Moses got out with the children of Israel. Did you know scholars um, say that probably, approximately 2.4 million Hebrews came out of Egypt, later part, went through the miraculously parted Red Sea and escaped the Egyptian army. God delivered them from their bondage. What is Passover? Passover is an annual dinner that reminds the people of God that the Lord delivered their ancestors from Egypt, that the angel of death, when he saw the blood, passed over the homes of their ancestors, sparing them from judgment. And now back to Luke's gospel in verse two, what you see here is that the the, uh, chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, what are they doing? They're preparing, they're making evil plans to put Jesus to death. And what is Jesus doing at this point in the gospel? Jesus is preparing himself to be the Lamb of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, watch me here because you got to understand the new covenant. For 1,500 years, okay, 1,500 BC, Moses comes down Mount Sinai with the law of God. And so for 1,500 years, year after year after year, Passover was celebrated, lambs were slaughtered, blood flowed, millions of lambs. And every one of those lambs was a type. They were a type of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus was preparing himself, the antitype of all the types, to become that Lamb of God. And so now we look at verse three. Satan wants to get involved in all this. How many of you guys know Satan's always trying to get his foot in? And so Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad, yeah, I bet, and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them, in the absence of the crowd. They had to do this this secretly because they didn't want the crowd to turn against them. Judas, what a tragic character in history. I mean, honestly, do you guys know anybody named Judas today? Have any moms and dads named their sons Judas for the last 2,000 years? Probably very few, um, if any. And so Judas hung out with Jesus and he hung out with the disciples for years, and yet he never got saved. I like that term. Some people think that, you know, that term saved is only, you know, originated somewhere in Texas, you know, from the Baptists. No, the word saved comes from the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. And so, hey, guess what? Judas never got saved even though he hung out with Jesus and the disciples for years. Did you know that you can come to church and hang out with God's people for years and still not be saved? I've told you before, my Mustang goes to church, but my Mustang is not saved. Now, it's probably more saved than the Camaros and Challengers that are out there today, (laughs) just saying. But it's still not saved. And so you can go to church, you can get baptized. You can go through some ritual of communion. You can do all kind of good works and still not be saved. And so how do we get saved? Here's how we get saved. We admit we're sinners. We admit we're lost. We understand that the penalty of our sin is judgment and death. And yet we understand also that Jesus so loved the world he hung on a cross and he died and he paid for our sins and we confess Jesus as Lord and we receive him as our savior. Judas hung out with Jesus. Judas hung out with Jesus and he never believed he was Lord. Judas didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so Satan entered into his heart, the unbeliever's heart. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan and demons cannot enter into a believer's heart. No way, Jose, ever. Satan and demons can only enter into unbelievers' hearts. Why? Because believers have the Holy Spirit of God, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is not going to let any demon come in where he's at. So don't don't, don't get off into that stuff. And so Satan entered his heart, led Judas to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Verse seven, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, hey, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he's gonna show you a large upper room furnished prepare the Passover there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. How did Peter and John prepare for this Passover dinner? The first thing they did, they went out and bought a lamb of the first year without blemish or spot, and they took the lamb up to the Jewish temple. And the priest slaughtered the lamb. I'm sure they had to get in line because there's, Thousands and thousands of Jews taking their lambs to the temple. And then what did they do? They roasted the meat of the lamb, they took that roasted meat up to a upper room. At some point they bought unleavened bread, bitter herbs, sauces, wine, and they put it all out on what's called a triclinium. Now ladies and gentlemen, here's what the Last Supper did not look like, okay? It's just not true. You know, Leonardo da Vinci is a great, amazing artist, but that's not what it looked like. Number one, they would not be sitting at a Western-style high table. Number two, they wouldn't all be on one side of the table, like they're posing for Leonardo as he's painting them. Some of the pictures have halos over their heads. That obviously does not exist. And so, you know, it probably looks something more like this. And so there's a triclinium. A triclinium are the tables in the first century Uh, low to the ground, three sides, and there's pillows on the outside of the three sides or couch around the three sides. And so they would be just casually around this triclinium. And so it looked, the Last Supper looked something more like that picture. Look at verse 14 now. And when the hour had come, Jesus reclined. That's the idea there reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the what? Kingdom Kingdom of God. Everybody say kingdom of God. One day, Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth, literally, and he's going to set up the kingdom of God. We covered it, 33-plus messages in the book of Revelation, all culminating in the fact that he is going to come back and he's going to set up a kingdom. At that time, the redeemed of all ages are going to gather together to this great feast. The feast is going to take place in the millennium, and yes, there's going to be a literal thousand-year millennium on this earth. The Bible says what it means and means what it says. And that millennium is called, the, uh, the, 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 the that feast in the millennium is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's in Revelation chapter 19. Now, if you know Christ, you're going to be invited. So I want you to picture this in your mind. There you are in the kingdom age. Jesus has come back. Everything's changed. Everything's awesome. And there's a feast and there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, they're not going to need church name, name tags because you're just going to know who they are. At the, at the um, transfiguration, uh, the disciples knew who was Moses and who was Elijah. We, we'll, we'll just know. And so there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's Moses and Samuel and David and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth, and Zechariah, and John the Baptist, and Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and Timothy, and Titus, and I believe Wesley, and Whitfield and Spurgeon, and Moody, and you and me, if you know Christ, and all of us are going to be gathered together, the redeemed of all ages, for this magnificent millennial meal. And we're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be dancing. We're going to be eating all because Jesus is a promise keeper and not a promise breaker, and he is going to come back, and he is going to set up his kingdom on this earth. Talk about a party, that's gonna be a party. And so Jesus said, hey, I'm not gonna eat this until I eat it in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 17 now, put your seatbelts on, please. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, that's the idea behind the term Eucharist, thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my what, which is given for you. Now let's stop right there. There's lots of confusion about this, lots of debate. He took bread, unleavened bread, and he said, this is my body. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's obvious that he was speaking metaphorically. There is no way that when Jesus took that unleavened bread and said, guys, this is my body, that it at that moment turned literally into Jesus' body. Neither did the wine in the cup turn literally into the blood of Jesus. He's speaking metaphorically. And so there's a doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church called the doctrine of transubstantiation. And this doctrine says that when the priest holds up the bread and holds up the cup, that mysteriously, miraculously, that bread turns into the literal body of Jesus and the wine turns into the literal blood of Jesus it transubstantiates, turns into the literal body and blood. And they will go so far in the Roman Catholic Church to make doctrines to say that you have to adore and worship that bread. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's not true. Jesus was speaking metaphorically. When he said to the, about the bread, this is my body, he wasn't saying, he wasn't speaking literally there. He was speaking symbolically. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, did he all of a sudden turn into a vine? When Jesus said, I am the door, did he all of a sudden become a door? You remember our, 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 our principle of hermeneutics, Bible interpretation? When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense. And so it's very obvious here that the Lord is speaking metaphorically. And by the way, for you history buffs, transubstantiation did not become an official doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 A.D. Debated for centuries, but then not made an official doctrine until 1215 A.D. And by the way, other denominations within Christendom disagree with their stance, and so do we. And so what, 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 what's up with the bread? What's up with the wine? It's, it's Jesus tells us, okay? Look again um, at your Bibles in verse 19. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in, what's the next three words? Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to do here at the end of the service, we do in remembrance of him. It's a memorial meal, and the elements are symbols, of his broken body and of his shed blood. It's a symbol, but remember, behind every symbol, there's a literal truth. So behind the symbol of the bread, there's the literal broken body of Jesus. Behind the symbol of the cup, there's the literal blood of Jesus. Does this make sense to you guys? And so people will say, well, yeah, but he said in John six, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He's speaking metaphorically. He's talking about, the necessity of relying, trusting, putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he he said, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now now look at verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you, I love this, is what kind of covenant? Everybody please say new. Man, this is huge here. This is the new covenant covenant. In my blood. Why did Jesus refer to this as a new covenant? Because it would replace the old covenant. And so, if you're taking notes, the new has replaced the old. What is the old covenant? It's the law of Moses, 1500 BC. Okay? And so, hey, the new has replaced the old. The author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, what's the word? Obsolete. Obsolete. What does the word obsolete mean? I looked it up in the dictionary. It means no longer used, out of date. And so the law of Moses, the old covenant, is out of date, it is no longer used. You gotta get this, New Testament Christians, Christianity 101, please get this. The law of Moses, the old covenant, is obsolete. How long did it last? It lasted from 1500 BC, when Moses came down with the two tablets, and it went all the way to uh, AD 3233 when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, hung between heaven and earth and allow, allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And so in speaking about the Old Covenant, you gotta understand this, okay? So think with me. Let's be thinking Christians, okay? Let's be able to explain our faith to people. When it comes to the Old Covenant, you gotta understand that it was a bilateral, conditional covenant, and the terms of that covenant were written on two stone tablets. Anybody remember what, what that's called? The Ten Commandments. And by the way, there was a lot more than 10. There was 613 Laws in Torah. And so, if, please say the word if, if the children of Israel were to keep the law of Moses, the old covenant, if they were to keep the Ten Commandments, if they were to keep the 613 laws of Torah, then God says, if you keep your end of the deal, I'm gonna keep my end of the deal. If you obey, then I will bless. I will bless you in the promised land, and I will protect you in the promised land. But guess what happened? Those of you who read the Old Testament know exactly what happened. Israel broke the terms of the covenant again and again and again, and so God, because they didn't hold up their end of the deal, God did not hold up his end of the deal, and he no longer blessed them in the land. In fact, he made sure they got booted out of the land. In age uh, of 733 to 721 BC, the Assyrians came down and took the 10 northern tribes of Israel into captivity. They didn't come back, some of them came back. We, we know that because of uh, uh, some of the verses in the New Testament, that some of them came back, but by and large, they're gone. Why? They broke the covenant. Not only that, but in uh, B.C., uh, 607 to 586 B.C., the Babylonians came down, they finished the job. They took the tribe, the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah into captivity. But then, because God's a gracious God, 70 years later, Judah, where we get the term Jews, came back to their land, you have the intertestamental, uh, intertestamental period. Jesus Christ, to the fullest of time, comes. They reject their Messiah, and so Jesus predicts that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. That happened in A.D. 70. Later on, in A.D. 132 to 135, in the Jewish wars, the bar revolt, guess what happened? The Jews revolted against the Romans, and the Romans booted them out of the land. Now, ladies and gentlemen, they were out of their land for some 1800 years. Why? Because they broke the terms of the covenant. Now, here's the question Does that mean God is finished with the nation of Israel because they broke the old covenant? I'm so happy to hear at least a third of you say no. So let's try 100%. Say no way. No way. God, mark it down, highlight it, circle in red. God loves Israel so much that when they broke the conditional old covenant, he said, I'm going to make an unconditional new covenant with you. You say, Where's that at? Hold your place in Luke, turn back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, while the old covenant was still going on, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jeremiah and he foresees a new covenant in the future. Jeremiah 31, 31. If you're looking at it, please say amen. Okay, let's get into the word, people. Let's understand the scriptures. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, what kind of a covenant? A new covenant, look look at this, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they what? Broke, that's the Mosaic law. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Who's he talking about? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. They're gonna all know me From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And for those in the church today who say God's done with Israel, please jump down to verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declared the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Can anybody take a, a, a yardstick and measure the heavens? Yes or no? What does that mean? That means God's not done with Israel. They broke his old covenant that was conditional, but he says, I still love you so much, I'm gonna make an unconditional new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Dr. Thomas Ice wrote this, the new covenant provides for the yet future spiritual regeneration of who? In preparation for the millennial kingdom. This is an unconditional covenant and it's made between the Lord and the nation of Israel and has not yet been enacted for the nation of Israel. Israel. Please, everybody, look at me. And so what happened was A.D. 70 and then A.D. 132 to 135, the, the Jews got booted out of their land, gone. I think it was Hadrian that renamed the land Palestine after the ancient foes, the Philistines. That's why I never, I never call the, 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 all the land of Israel Palestine. I just don't do it. It's Israel. Because guess what? Guess what happened? 1,800 years later, did anybody read this in the news? On May 14th, 1948, guess who came back to their land? The Jews. And Israel became, never happened before in the history of the world. Israel became a nation once again. Why? So that God could fulfill Jeremiah 31 and he could come back. And ladies and gentlemen, when he comes back, the Bible says that the Jews, Zechariah says, are going to look up as Jesus comes back to rescue them from the nations of the world that are coming down upon them, and they're going to see his scars, his piercing, the one that they, they pierced, and they're going to say, Jesus was our Messiah all along. And Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, all Israel will be saved. And then what's gonna happen? Then there's the millennial 1,000. It's all right there in the Bible. All we have to do is read it. There's a 1,000 year millennial kingdom. What's God gonna do at that time? He's gonna fulfill Jeremiah 31. He's gonna make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's gonna put his law in their hearts. He's gonna write it on their hearts. He's gonna be their God. They're gonna be his people. He's gonna forgive their sins. He's gonna wash away all their iniquity and remember them no more. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with the church? Well, I'm glad you asked because we are the church, right? And so even though the new covenant will be fulfilled with Israel in the millennium, Jews and Gentiles in this age of grace that turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Lord, hey, guess what? We get to participate in the new covenant today. What did Paul say? The apostle to the church, to people like you and me. Paul said that God has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. There it is. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. And so Paul said, Hey, church, church family, if he was here today, he'd say, Hey, Calvary PSL family, guess what? We are ministers of the new covenant. And that means that we as the church can participate in the spiritual blessings of the new covenant today while the world awaits the fulfillment of it in the nation of Israel. We can enjoy the spiritual blessings of the new covenant today. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That means that we as Gentiles and Jews today can look at the Lamb of God hanging on a cross. And we understand that our sin causes judgment, our sin causes death, our sin causes condemnation. But with the eyes of faith, when we look at our Savior hanging on the cross, And we know and we believe that his body was broken in our place, that his blood was shed so that our sins can be forgiven. And when we receive him and what he did on the cross, Guess what happens? The Spirit of God, the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, the Spirit of God comes, invades our hearts. He regenerates our hearts. He indwells our bodies. He empowers us to keep the law, not the law of Moses. That's obsolete. He empowers us to keep the law of Christ, the law of love, which will never end. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Has the Holy Spirit come into your heart? Has he regenerated your heart? Are you just a part of a religion? Or have you come to Christ? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And if the Lord doesn't come back in this life when you and I are on our deathbeds and we're about to take our last breath, when that angel of death comes flying over us and he looks down into our hearts, guess what he's going to see? He's going to see the blood of Jesus Christ that's been applied to the lintels and doorposts of our hearts. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to pass over us. We will not be judged. We will be saved and we will go and see Jesus forevermore. That's the gospel truth. And if you're here today and you're hardening your heart and you're saying it's not true, then that, that, that death angel will drag you down into the depths of hell and you'll have to pay for your own sins forever. Why in the world would you ever pay for your own sins when the eternal son of God paid for your sins 2,000 years ago? Turn to him. Turn to him. Receive him. So, check out the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant as the elders and ushers prepare to distribute the elements, ladies and gentlemen. This is something to get excited about. The old covenant was mediated by Moses, the new covenant mediated by Christ. The old covenant was conditional, the new covenant, unconditional. The old covenant, countless animal sacrifices, the new covenant. The Lamb of God died once and for all. The old covenant, we're kept outside the veil. We can't even go into the presence of God. God is so holy. Under the new covenant, guess what? When Jesus cried, it is finished, the veil ripped from top to bottom. And Jesus says, come on in and fellowship with me. Under the old covenant, it's all about law. Under the new covenant, it's all about Grace. Are you thankful for the grace of God? One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm New Here. Then, Knowing Christ.